Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Judges uh, chapter 1. In the future, I hope to uh, continue the sort of informal uh, study that I've been leading you through in the shortest books of the Bible. We still need to uh, finish up Jude and Obadiah, uh, so I'm looking forward to that. But this morning, I'd ask that you turn to Judges chapter 1, something that I uh, read in my devotions recently, and I thought that it would be uh, worth us uh, considering together. So we'll read Judges 1 uh, through chapter 2, verse 5. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they defeated ten thousand of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to uh, pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the Negev. And in the lowland, and Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, and they defeated Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Deber. The name of Deber was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Ixah, my daughter, for, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Ixah, his daughter, for a wife. And when she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev, near Arad, and they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites, who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city. And they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz, 
That is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblium and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulon did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal, so the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Echo or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alab or of Axib or of Helba or of Aphek or of uh, Rahab. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres and Ajalon and, and in Shalbim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim from Selah and upward. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not, uh, sorry, uh, uh, you shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Let's go to the Lord for help now. Father in heaven, as we come to this old text with many unfamiliar places, and unfamiliar scenes, we ask that you would open it to us, that we might know the warnings, the exhortations, the encouragements that you are giving, it, uh, giving to us from it, that we might uh, walk in faith and in obedience to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Our passage uh, this morning is a warning against complacency and making peace with our enemy, sin. And it's a call to conquer sin in the power of Christ's Spirit. Simply put, God put this passage in our Bibles to wake His people up to the complacency that exposes us to temptation, draws us into transgression, and threatens us with spiritual disaster. This passage is a warning for Christians who aren't actively engaged in combat with our sinful condition. I suppose the reason that this uh, passage jumped out uh, at me in my devotions is because of just how necessary a warning uh, this is. I speak personally. I, I know this to be the case. I know the tendency toward growing 
complacent, coasting. The busyness that most of us live in only heightens the temptation to complacency. Because when you're busy, you don't stop to think or to reflect, uh, to take stock of your soul, to consider where you might be particularly prone to spiritual danger. And when we're busy, there's just a triage that naturally happens. We can't get to everything. We can't do all things as well as we'd like. And so some things we sort of do so-so. And other things we need to put back on the back burner to get to later. We just get set on autopilot just to get through. Well, how often is it for us that our own spiritual condition and our own battle with sin is what gets put on the back burner? Too often. Too often. So our passage is a warning to complacent Christians. And I hope to show us that by looking at the people's victory, the people's compromise, and the people's pseudo-repentance. Now, the book of Judges tells us by, uh, begins rather by telling us that it's a sequel to the book of Joshua. And the book of Joshua ends with several notable burials. Uh, uh, most uh, prominent among those burials was the burial of Joshua himself. Joshua was the successor of Moses, and under God, you know, uh, may know, Joshua had led Israel into Canaan, the land that God had promised to give to Israel. And under Joshua's leadership, Israel had won uh, many major military battles. Now, they had won, uh, uh, they had defeated uh, enemies in Canaan all throughout the land, and they had uh, become established in the land. And Joshua's legacy was one of courage and godly leadership. Unlike so many other leaders in the Bible, Joshua's leadership was not marred by instances of sin or uh, folly. And so when Judges begins by reminding us that Joshua is dead, it points out that Israel's in a a period of major transition when we get uh, to our passage. And they still have a job to do. Because under Joshua's leadership, the people had established a a beachhead, a a foothold in Canaan, but they still had work to do to uh, dispossess and destroy the original inhabitants. This was the mission that God had given his people uh, when they were in the wilderness. God had told the people that he would lead them into the land that he had uh, promised to give to them, and he would give them victory over uh, the land's inhabitants. And when they were in the land, God had told Moses They were to devote the people to complete destruction and make no covenant with the people and show no mercy to them. If they left any people in the land, the Lord said, their hearts would turn away to serve other gods and God's anger would ultimately be turned against them. Israel was not to partner with the Canaanites in any way, but they were commanded to wipe them out completely, entirely. Now, we might recoil at this command. We are rightly revolted by the mass destruction of the Jews in the Holocaust, as well as other people groups in Darfur or Cambodia or the Uyghurs in China. How is this any different? Well, let me say I don't intend to give a comprehensive answer here. Our passage uh, assumes the righteousness of uh, God's command, and it doesn't spend a lot of time giving reasons for it. Uh, So that's not the focus of this sermon. But if you do have questions, here's what I'd say about this. This was not an an ethnic or a race-based killing. This command was capital punishment, divine judgment. 
God tells Abraham in Genesis 15 that he would give Abraham's descendants this land of Canaan, but he says the sins of the Canaanites were not yet complete. Or you could go to Deuteronomy chapter 9. God says that he was driving these people out of the land because of their great wickedness. And we know from the Bible and from other secular sources, we know that the the Canaanite society worshipped other gods Adultery was assumed to be okay, at least for men. They sacrificed children, they approved of homosexuality, and they tolerated incest and bestiality. These were the sins that characterized these people in the land. And in this command, in this command that God had given to his people, he was punishing this great wickedness. And he would, of course, punish the same wickedness when it become, became evident in his people later on in the Old Testament. As one scholar has pointed out in an article on this subject, we don't hate sin, so we don't understand what happened to the Canaanites. And I think that that's exactly it. Now, this command sets up our story that it's about God's righteous judgment against evil. God is holy. He does not approve of sin. He may endure sin for a time and for a purpose, but he does not overlook it. And in the opening scenes of Judges, the people show their readiness to obey God's specific command to them to purge the land. In the opening 21 verses, there are at least three positive features that we see uh, in the tribes of Judah and Simeon. First, they seek the Lord's leadership in verses 1 and 2. This is good. It's a sign of an, an initial dependence upon God. Second, there's a a unity uh, or a collaboration among the people. If we went on to read the rest of the book of Judges, you'd see that there's a a, a gradual breakdown in national cohesion or unity among the people. But the book begins with these two tribes working together to accomplish what God had commanded. And thirdly, and most significantly, we see that Judah and Simeon are actually doing what God told them to do. And the Lord was with Judah and Simeon. He blessed their efforts. He gave them a victory. They defeated 10,000 at at Bezek. They sliced off Adonai Bezek's uh, uh, big toes and and thumbs, making him unable to do battle anymore. They captured Hebron, uh, where the residents uh, uh, were known for their towering figures and strength. And the Lord was with the people as as, uh, Judah drove out the pesky Philistines in in Gaza and Ashkelon and Ekron. Things were going pretty well for Judah in these first 20 verses. God's keeping his promise to be with his people. God's giving them victory as they they take the land just as he had promised. The people showed uh, signs of dependence upon God and obedience to God. And as a result, they're experiencing the blessing of God. Everything's going great, right? Well, there are hints that this isn't the case. Israel's like a person who goes to the doctor because they're experiencing some uh, minor, seemingly minor issue. Uh, Things look good on the surface, but on closer examination, it's discovered that there's cancer spreading through the body. In Israel's case, the mysterious symptom uh, in the opening 20 verses is in verse 19. Judah could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. But it's only when we do a a CT scan, if you will, of the whole nation in verses 21 and following that we see the scope of the problem. If you have your Bible, still look with me at verses 21 and following. One thing that surely stands out in these 15 verses to the end of the chapter is that they feel a bit repetitive. You probably sensed that as I was reading. 
There's a lot of talk about uh, uh, towns in Canaan uh, that we're maybe not sure how to pronounce. Uh, eight times we're told that Israel did not drive out the inhabitants of a particular region. And just with this repetition, we might be tempted to sort of skim over these verses. But there's more than repetition going on here. There's also a digression, a digression of disobedience, a downward movement away from what God had called his people to do. And we need to slow down in order to to catch that, to see that. The people had been commanded, as I said, to wipe out entirely the Canaanites and to inhabit the land that God had given them. But then in verse 21, we're told that the tribe of Benjamin didn't drive out the Jebusites. In verses 22 to 26, the house of Joseph lay siege to the city of Bethel. And you see sort of these short bullet point uh, military reports. And all of a sudden you have this little expanded version here. And it's interesting that that they explain this in more detail. But what we see is that the Israelites, they they grab a local. They say, show us a way into the city. Uh, He does that. They conquer Bethel. uh, And then they let the man and all his family go. So they leave a family. Then in verse 27, we're told Manasseh didn't drive out the inhabitants of its territory because the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. They were determined. They were insistent. They willfully resisted any eviction by the Israelites. They put up a fight. If these Israelites were going to obey, they were going to have to exert some serious effort to have that happen. And so in verse 28, though Israel grew strong, they didn't drive out the Canaanites completely. Verse 29 tells us that Ephraim didn't drive out the Canaanites out of one city, Gezer. Verse 30 says Zebulun didn't drive out the Canaanites from two cities. And in verse 31, it's reported that Asher did not drive out seven cities. Less and less the people are obeying God's command. And more and more they're tolerating the enemy around them. Another way that Judges gets at this is a subtle shift in language. So when uh, Ephraim and Zebulon didn't drive out the the, uh, Canaanites, uh, there were Canaanites, the author of Judges says, who were still living among the Israelites. They were scattered throughout Ephraim and Zebulon. It's sort of like uh, if you think of your Halloween candy kids, uh, you've got a couple almond joys that are sort of scattered throughout your Halloween candy. It's like, okay, they're there. It's, It's not that big a deal. We'll just sort of overlook it. But then we get the report of Asher and Naphtali, and the situation is different. Now, the Israelites are said to live among the Canaanites. So now it's like having one big bag of almond joys with just a few Reese's peanut butter cups sort of sprinkled in to tease you. And finally, in verse 34, the digression reaches its lowest point, as it's not just that the people of Dan didn't drive out the inhabitants of the land, but they themselves were pressed back. And it was only through the intervention of other tribes that the Amorites were somewhat subdued. But there's one more observation that we need to make about these verses. Israel had the power to obey, but it lacked the conviction. And we might be tempted to make excuses for uh, Israel. Uh, They did what they could, uh, or uh, maybe we'll rationalize their actions. I mean, hey, at least they sort of subdued the Canaanites. They made them to be uh, uh, their their, uh, slaves. But that's perhaps the most incriminating comment of all. Because it tells us that Israel had the power to overcome the Canaanites, but chose not to obey God's command. They had enough power to make them their servants, but not to obey the the command that God had told them to do. They didn't have that conviction. 
So though Judas starts by providing a largely positive example, the rest of the chapter tells us this is a story of increasing complacency and compromise. These Canaanites, they were the the enemies of God. They loved what is evil. God had warned his people, they will entice you toward idolatry and disobedience. But the sad story is that we see Israel's growing complacency and compromise toward the enemy. And it starts with a resistant enemy that they made peace with. It progresses to allowing the enemy to have a foothold. And it ends up in being overrun and defeated by the enemy. It's this negative example of the dangerous degression of disobedience that's uh, one of the things that we need to see this morning. This text is a warning, as I've said. It's a, a siren, a spiritual carbon monoxide detector warning us against the subtle yet dangerous and deadly danger of complacency towards sin. For God's people today, of course, our our enemy is not the Canaanites or any other people group. The enemy is sin, which the Canaanites in this story represent. The Canaanites embody sin and rebellion against God. Now, in this way, we might say that this chapter gives gives us an anatomy of sin. How does sin work? Christians should be thinking this way. How does sin work so we can be on guard? As Christians, we want to know this so that we can be resistant uh, to the enemy and we can know how best to turn from it and to run from it. And what we see in this passage is the progressive nature of sin. By this, I mean that sinful acts we commit are rarely things that sort of spontaneously pop uh, pop up out of nowhere. There's a life to our sin. There's a story to our sin. A couple of counselors that I was reading recently put it this way, that temptation is like a river. You have uh, upstream, you have uh, midstream, and you have downstream. Upstream is where the water comes from. Downstream is where the water uh, goes. Applied to sin and temptation, downstream is the particular manifestation or display of sin. So for example, it's the decision to act out uh, sinfully by looking at sexualized images on your phone. Right? That's wicked. I, I know that uh, not everyone believes that, but Jesus says that that's wicked, that's sinful. In this case, the act of of looking at sexualized images is the downstream of sin. But where did that come from? Well, if we we trace the sin back upstream, we come to a place where uh, we've made a decision. Maybe we've made a decision to stay home when you know the house would be empty. And a little further upstream, you you, uh, could could trace that back and you see an hour you spent wasting time on the the internet. A website's appropriate but with banners that were particularly uh, intended to seduce or entice. And a little further upstream, there's the arrogant decision to not reach out for help when you just realized your thought life was not in a good place. It was trending toward the salacious, to to the, the sexual. You see how that works. Maybe that's you this morning. There's a progression from, from just allowing your thoughts to go unchallenged by a friend, to hanging around on websites, to making plans, to immersing yourself in sexual sin. At each point, obedience would have called you to stamp out that sin, to stamp out that temptation that was lurking, to make the call, to shut down the computer, to go for a walk and pray. But sin would gradually, gradually, gradually string you along. Of course, it's not just in the matter of sexual sin. Think about uh, sinful anger. I was thinking about this uh, with regard to myself. You explode at your, your kids or, or your coworker, right? You catch yourself just shaking with anger. 
and a torrent of nasty and wicked things coming out of your mouth. Cruel things, right? Threatening things. You stomp off, simmering with rage. That's the downstream destination. This wasn't just a a blip on the map. It wasn't wasn't a UFO, an unexplained freakout, right? There's a story to this anger. You know it. You've made decisions ahead of time that led to this moment. It started with a growing self-concern or a sense of entitlement. I deserve some peace and quiet after the kind of day that I've been through. Or a need for control or a fear of losing something or of something happening. Now, if you're a Christian, you know that these things don't line up with God's commands or they don't reflect God's promises to you. But life is busy, you tell yourself, right? Dealing with these things, it takes uh, time, it takes effort. Maybe it's not that big a deal anyway. Complacency and compromise. And so when you come from home from work and your roommate has left the place a mess, these thoughts, which you've given a foothold, begin to turn into a mental rant. Why should I be the one to clean up? Doesn't she realize all that I do? She always does this. She never shows any consideration. Suddenly, the little thoughts that you've let take up residence in your mind have grown. They've multiplied. And you're overcome by frustration and indignation. You begin assigning motives and universalizing the problem with any's and never's and always. But even here, you could have stomped the enemy out. You could have stopped and prayed read your Bible for five minutes, called a friend, go for a walk to slow down. But you don't. You let sin have space to breathe and like oxygen for a fire, it soon breaks out. You're overcome. Anger's unleashed. Pick your sin. Neglect of, of worship with God's people, complaining, bitterness, drunkenness, lying, deceit, whatever it might be, complacency and compromise toward our sin leads to more disastrous results. Here's how the two counselors I referenced earlier said it using this river analogy. If a person's passive about the triggers, or we might say about the sinful seeds that are upstream, the natural downstream flow of the river will keep them moving toward acting out sinfully. There's a natural and powerful pull to sin. By nature, sin is ambitious. It's expansive. It never wishes to remain uh, contained. It's like mold. It wants to spread So knowing this, why don't we eradicate our sin earlier on? Well, our text doesn't tell us exactly what the reasons Israel had for not wiping out the Canaanites as they were commanded, but I think we can safely infer some. Maybe they just got tired of fighting, right? It was just too hard. Or they felt entitled to a break, or they saw the advantages of of keeping the Canaanites around as, as cheap labor. Maybe they underestimated the danger. It's just a few people over there. What could it do? And don't those sound like the reasons that we give for taking it easy on our own sin? Everyone plays with the numbers a little bit. It's just business. I don't have time to meet with an accountability partner. I'm tired. Friend, our text is meant as a warning and a call to arms. Don't make peace with the enemy within. Have you taken time to consider, where have I let sin take up residence in my own life? Have you asked anyone to pray specifically for a sin that you're struggling with? What's your attack plan when it comes to these sins that you've identified as besetting? Do you have a battle plan? No one's ever won a a battle with merely good intentions. Well, why this is so important is spelled out in the opening verses of chapter 2. And this is where our third point comes in. The messenger of the Lord comes from Gilgal to Bochum. 
And there he reminds the people that it was the Lord who had taken them out of Egypt. It was the Lord who had graciously rescued them uh, from slavery, who had entered into a special relationship, a covenant with them. It was the Lord who had commanded them not to be influenced by other people, not to to come uh, to peace with them, to intermarry with them, lest they turn away to other gods. And in verse 3, because Israel didn't obey the Lord's command in this matter, because they made peace with the enemy, God said there would be consequences. God would withdraw his help from them, and God would expose them to the consequences of their sin. And people were being given over, in a manner of speaking, to their sinful choices. Now, there's many consequences for sin. The ultimate consequence, of course, is hell, the horrendous experience of God's eternal displeasure. But there's terrible uh, temporal consequences to our sin as well. Have you ever considered what it means for God to give you over to your sin? To allow sin to wreak havoc in your life. To let a critical, over, uh, overbearing spirit spread poison into your relationships. Or to have laziness weaken your sense of assurance. To have God say, if you want a toxic relationship with your sin, then so be it. Right? That's a frightening thing. Well, here's the thing. And people have a way out, a way of escape, but they chose not to take it. Time and time again in the book of Judges, we see that when the people turned back to God, when they repented, God delivered them. Is that what they do, though? Well, when they're confronted with their sin in chapter 2, the Israelites are distraught. They weep, they pray, they perform uh, religious acts of sacrifice, all good signs. All signs, at least under the Old Testament, that we would expect to accompany repentance. Grief, crying out out to God, seeking God's mercy, all necessary evidences of true repentance. But sincere, true, godly repentance is discerned not only by by what is present, but by what's absent. And notice what's absent in this scene. A turning from sin to a new obedience. True repentance involves a God-empowered effort to turn away from our sin and to turn back to God. In this case, the people wept, they prayed, they sacrificed, but then they went home to their three-bedroom apartment beside Mr. and Mrs. Amorite. This was an incomplete repentance. In fact, said as it is at the beginning of the book of Judges, it's quite clear that their repentance was not the start of a turn toward God, it was more like a religious-tasting burp in the midst of the people's religious or, or their progressive disobedience. When God challenges us in our sin, genuine repentance will involve a spirit-dependent plan to, uh, uh, to attack our sin and to turn away from it and to turn toward God. But how often is our repentance just like the Israelites? Tears of grief, perhaps? Fervent prayer, at least initially? but not a spirit-dependent turning to walk in a new obedience to Jesus. Well, because we're in so many ways like the Israelites, things at this point seem pretty bleak. Is this just going to be us? Are we going to be perpetually ensnared by an ever-present enemy that wants us to compromise? That God's just going to end up giving us over to our sin? What, What hope does this passage give? What hope does this passage give to the person entertaining Uh, the person who's entertaining temptation today, for example, to the person who's going to hear temptation whisper to them this afternoon, it's just one more time. It's not that big a deal. He deserves it. To the person whose heart is being drawn to sin. 
What hope does it give to the person who's not merely being tempted, but who's caught in sin? To the professing Christian who has made peace with their short temper, their discontentment, their lack of self-control with food or drink. Look at what the angel of the Lord says in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I'm the one who's rescued you from bondage and death. And I will never, the Lord says, break my covenant, my special promise with you. He says, I've redeemed you. I'm going to keep my end of the promise. Well, and how does he do that? Well, Israel was the Lord's chosen servant, his son, whom God had, had commanded, drive out the people from the land, eliminate the enemy, push them away. But Israel had stayed its hand and come to peace, had come to terms with the enemy. But the Lord would send another servant, another son, to succeed where Israel failed. His name, of course, is Jesus. He was sent not to fight against the Amorites or the Perizzites or the Jebusites, but to conquer Satan and sin to the utmost. And this Jesus did by resisting sin to the utmost, resisting sin even to the point of death. Not once in his earthly ministry did Jesus himself make a concession to sin. He resisted every temptation in thought, word, and deed. He gave sin no quarter. But Jesus did more than just resist sin. He put sin to flight. He defeated sin, both the objective and the subjective realities of sin. He took the sin of his people upon himself on the cross that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Jesus defeated the reign of sin over his people. And then by his spirit, Jesus goes to work uh, to put sin to death. Christ is gradually at work in his people to put sin to death, to make us more and more holy. And one day, in the presence of Jesus, sin in his people will be conquered entirely. It will be completely eradicated, devoted to destruction, and we will be made pure. And all God's enemies, all sin, will be devoted to destruction as the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty army of angels and all of God's enemies will be cast into the lake of fire, the eternal judgment. So if you're a sinner here this morning, it's by trusting in this sin conqueror, being united to him by faith that sin, the enemy of your soul, shall be defeated. It's not ultimately in, in your own efforts alone uh, and, and striving to, to subdue sin. Jesus is the fighting captain who presses relentlessly without compromise toward the final victory for all those who trust in him. Jesus will not relent. He will end sin. Amen. Now, it's not perfect, uh, but it sort of brings to mind something from the Lord of the Rings. You might think of the, uh, the battle images in Lord of the Rings. And there's Aragorn, the brave and mighty captain who's cutting through the enemy. And then there's the two hobbits, Merry and Pippin. Right? They follow in the wake, fi finishing off the enemy as Aragorn does all the hard work. Well, Christ is our captain. And we're just the hobbits following behind, putting the enemy to death, benefiting in the victory of our captain. And he's going to lead us to full and final victory. Jesus has defeated the sins that beset you. Pride and lust and greed, he's broken their power. If you belong to Jesus by faith, these are wounded sins. More than that, they are doomed sins. And with the help of Jesus, by his spirit, you can put them to death. So committed to his promises, God has provided a sin conqueror who will not stop until sin is fully, finally, and forever conquered. 
And with that, we as his people, trusting in Jesus, looking to him, knowing that victory is sure, we have every reason to shake off complacency and to forsake compromise. The victory is won. Jesus is going to eradicate sin entirely. And we need only to look to him and trust in him to experience the benefits of his victory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus, the, the mighty king who subdues a people for himself and rules over us and protects us from our enemies, Satan, sin, and death. We thank you for Jesus who has conquered sin and will one day remove sin entirely. And Lord, I pray that you would wake us up to our own sin and then wake us up to see Jesus as the one whom we must cast ourselves upon, that, that sin might not be, we might not be complacent about our sin, we might not compromise with our sin, we might not make peace with our sin, but with, with a relentlessness that comes to us by the Spirit, we would seek to put sin to death for Jesus' sake and in Jesus' power. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I ask that you now stand as we sing our song of response, a, a prayer that the Spirit would work in us a greater love for Jesus, Spirit of God, descend upon my heart.
receive now the benediction from Romans chapter 16. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.